You may have heard of Alexander the Great's famous diving bell, but he was far from the first Earthling to explore the depths with trapped air. Putzing around the ocean in a paper-thin shell, the Argonaut has a sophisticatedly simple way of staying buoyant. But nothing gets this odd octopus down except gravity here in life, death, and taxonomy. Welcome back to Life, Death, and Taxonomy. It's your 30 minutes of interesting animal info, and I'm Joe. And I'm Carlos. <laughs> and today we're talking about a nautilus that isn't actually a nautilus at all. But it is a Greek mythological hero. More on some of that later. Yes, for sure. But not all of it. Uh, but yeah, we're, ta- we're talking about the Argonauts. <laughs> That's uh, so this turned out to be a Greek mythology podcast. A, a little bit, I found myself find like going down the, the uh, just infinite rabbit hole of Greek mythology through this because there's just so much that you don't know about Greek mythology. That you're like, oh, this person did this because this person did this. Well, who's this person? Oh, they're the daughter of this person. Well. What did that person do? What he's the, what is he the god of? Greek mythology really is comic books of the olden days. <laughs> Cuz it's all convoluted, none of the physics makes sense. <laughs> uh, but that's not what we're talking about today at all. No, we're not. We're talking about the Argonaut, which is it's such a cool word for a very cool animal, but just it, the animal does not fit this word. Well, this thing could easily have two two major facts yeah it really could at least if, you know if i say the argonaut i just feel like it need- you, you're thinking of something huge i'm thinking of i'm thinking of the thing that eats the the thing that you see on screen just before liam neeson says there's always a bigger fish in phantom menace <laughs> and then it gets eaten by the leviathan yeah the, Le- the leviathan is what i would call the argonaut but no, this is the exact opposite of a leviathan. Unless you're zooplankton, then it's probably not going to be a leviathan. Um, but we're going to call it here. Well, here's some here's some scientific names, or just names that people other than me have come up with. Um, the so the argonaut is also called the paper nautilus, even though it's not a nautilus, as we mentioned earlier. And that's um, a, that's everything in the genus is really referred to as a paper nautilus. Well, yeah, because argonaut is. Uh, a genus yeah and we'll get into the taxonomy later um, but it's also called the uh, pelagic octopus which is a group of octopuses that live in the open ocean rather than uh, scurrying along the seabed but, but here's we're gonna call it here the ancient argonaut because it taught us taught us how to make pyramids um, <laughs> the uh, teeny tiny tentacled tot and Jason, leader of the Argonauts. <laughs> uh, but it's also called Aristotle's sailing octopus. And it's called this because in 300 BC, Aristotle wrote of a peculiar octopus that rises from the deep to sail on the ocean surface in a boat made out of a shell. And it uses two arms as sails and six arms as oars, according to Aristotle. Um, and he thinks it navigated the oceans of the world. But there are images of Argonauts 
um, on Minoan artifacts all the way back to 3000 BC. So like before Moses led the Israelites from Egypt, they were uh, people were fascinated by these um, little shelled octop- octopuses. They so because of the shell shape, there seems to be like this little sail on it. So that's I think where ancient people thought it sailed the seas it's with wind currents. Boat. It's a little cute little octopus boat, but it apparently doesn't do it doesn't go to the surface to use air currents. To no, move it does around. not. And it has a it much uses... more sophisticated uh, system of motion, which I will talk about later. Okay. Um, and it's I said Jason, leader of the Argonauts, because as we mentioned, this is based off of uh, it's called an Argonaut based off of a Greek hero named Jason. It's not very doesn't sound very Greek. Doesn't sound very Greek heroish. It's not Jasonifus or something like that. It's, you know, just Jason, but. He was uh, a Greek hero that w- went off to go find the Golden Fleece and to find it. And on his journey, he uh, sailed on a ship called the Argo. And so he and his fellow sailors were called Argonauts, which literally means Argo sailor. Hmm. But I didn't read the rest of that. It was a really long story with a lot of convoluted gods and demigods and goddesses and people involved that I was never going to remember anyway. Just know that he tried to find the Golden Fleece and may have succeeded. I'm not sure. Go look it up. But I'm ready for some taxonomy if you got some. Probably probably guess the kingdom. You might be able to guess the kingdom, but it is... It's it's kind of a... It throws you for a loop. Does it? No. It's in the kingdom of Mahalia. You know it. You love it. You're in it. I knew uh, it. It's in the phylum Mollusca. Ain't no spines in this party. It's in the class uh, Cephalopoda. But that's squids and octopuses and... I re- I really wish it was octopi. I feel like that's just more fun to say. It is cacti more fun to say. Hippopotami. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's in the order Octopoda. It's in the family Argonautidae, and it's in the genus Argonata, and it's in the species Argo. It is the species Argo? Argonata Argo. It's the greater Argonaut. It's <laughs> sailors on the argo argo <laughs> that's the name of this yep they really meal name they really uh quadrupled down on this one in the family yes. genus and species so it's, it's called the greater argonaut but we're going to talk about how because it, it's the biggest one but we're going to talk about how big that that is uh later on i think greater is a little bit of a um can be a bit misleading but in the meantime since we're in the business of naming things it's time for my favorite part of the show critter groups the part of the show where i ask you joe a question and that question is the same every time what is the name of a collective the collective noun for this animal or what is the name of a term of venery for this animal or what is the name of just a group of this animal it's all the same group term of venery collective noun it's it's all good stuff so if you saw a uh, group of argonauts just just milling about uh what would you say would you say hey look at that bob of argonauts it's option a option b is congregation of argonauts option c is bulwark of argonauts argonaut <laughs> too many r's argonauts 
And the option D is consortium of Argonauts. So they do sometimes travel in groups. They will, one will kind of attach to some kelp or some floating sea debris. And then they've actually found a bunch of them kind of attached to one another in this big clump. They could be at the the surface bobbing up and down. That's a good name, but it's also a good name to invent. Oh, also, sorry, I I, I, I um, misspoke in the beginning. It's not Argonauts. This is for octopuses. Gotcha. So then most octopuses don't bob. So I'm going to go away from that one. Uh, congregation. Then what were the other two? Uh, C was bulwark and D was consortium. I really like Bulwark because it is in a hymn. I'm going with Bulwark. Final answer? Yeah, I, I feel like because you also probably are familiar with the hymn, that's why it's in your brain and that's why you made it up. Uh, but that's what I'm going with. Uh, you're wrong and right. You're wrong because it's not Bulwark and you're right because it was in the hymn. <laughs> that's what I <laughs> thought of. Um, all, and I was just thinking of things that started with the letter B after Bob. Um, but the right answer is consortium. Yeah, that was my second guess. I should have went with my gut. Whenever there's a logic to be found, I'm usually right. So I should just go with my gut and like when I work through these things. Well, a consortium is like a group of symbiotic businesses. So uh, Right. I mean, it, it, it fittingly makes no sense. So... Yeah, these guys don't travel in groups all that much anyway. Neither do octopuses. I mean, octopuses don't travel in groups in general, but um, neither does the Argonaut. But like a bulwark is just like a wall, like a fortified wall. Yeah, no. I mean, that makes more sense with this one, this particular one. That's true. We'll talk about that. Uh, But first, would you like me to describe it? Yes, we need a description because this is not uh, your... Is smart. It's, it's it's different than your average octopus. Yes, Argonauts are octopuses, like we said, that are not nautiluses, but they may resemble a nautilus to some people. A nautilus is like um, a spiral-shelled uh, sea animal. There's like it, it's really old squid. fossils of them. Yeah, it's got like tentacles that come out of the. It's kind of like a if. If you take a snail, and instead of a snail popping out, you have, like, tentacles and a face. It's ammonite. Yes. That's what the helix fossil is kind of based on. Yeah. Uh, Females have shells, but males don't. It seems to protect their mantle while their tentacles flail around outside, uh, giving them that signature nautilus chic. However... Uh, the shells are more like buckets of eggs and more. We're going to talk about more that more after uh, measure up. Uh, they often come in pale blue colors or some dawn reddish hues, but they can change their color and camouflage like other octopuses. Uh, they are very sexually dimorphic with a size difference that's reminiscent of the anglerfish. Males are as much as five times smaller than females and males, again, have no shell. But since we're talking about size, that brings us to a special segment that I like to call Measure Up. I'm so excited. 
Welcome to the Beloved Measure Up segment, the official listener's favorite part of the show, the part of the show when we present the animal size and dimensions in relatable terms through a quiz that's fun for the whole family. It's also part of the show that's introduced by you when you send an audio of yourself saying, singing, or chittering the words measure up into ldtaxonomy at gmail.com. We have a new measure up intro this week from Doug from Seattle. No way. Yes. From this is awesome. The city of coffee. The, the, yeah, the city of Starbucks on every corner. Doug, if you're listening, have a have have the Seattle's best coffee on us, and um, not not Seattle's can't. best. The the actual best coffee in Seattle. But g- good luck because you can't sit outside of the coffee shops right now. Order in. Oh, yeah, order or, or, in or, for sure. <laughs> yeah, get some Postmates to bring you the best coffee. Uh, but without further ado, the listeners' favorite part of the show. Measure up. Beautiful. Sounds like Doug has already had some of uh, Seattle's best coffee. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that, that was very enthusiastic. I liked it. It was it was powerful. I'd say. Yes, definitely. Thank you, Doug. This is awesome. <laughs> uh, let's get right into it. Female length. Let's talk about the length of a typical female uh, argonaut. Females, <laughs> gr- <laughs> females grow up to 10 centimeters or 3.9 inches. How many females go into the largest ever shell? As in the largest caliber rifled weapon bullet. So you're looking you, for rifle? basically the biggest bullet. The length of the biggest bullet. Doesn't like a tank shell count as a bullet that that's what i mean yeah it's a oh, shell okay uh here's a hint the gun was a german world war ii weapon called the schwerer gustav and it was uh 1490 tons it could fire these shells up to 29 miles and it was used against french fortifications in the Maginot Line, uh, which were the toughest fortifications at the time, and it was on it was a railway gun, which means it was this big gun on a train track, essentially. That's really good because it usually sometimes those things are just like stuck in the ground, and it's like, well, I hope we don't have to fire at anything thirty miles away because otherwise this gun is useless. Yeah, but the fact that it is nearly thirty miles of range is helpful. Yeah, but I, I can't I, imagine they're hitting anything with accuracy at thirty miles. They do with uh, spotters, I guess. And plus, the Maginot Line was a was an actual like uh, an established line of fortifications right. that had been there for decades. So they they could just be like, we we know that this fortification, we know that this little bunker is here. So all we have to do is just take our time with this. I don't think they can hit infantry very easily. I, I, I think it's one of those situations where they're shooting several times to try to get closer you know like when you're shooting mortars yeah as you do you know anyway so yeah yeah i remember many... my my history with uh the uh playing a lot of call of duty there was usually a mission where you had to go blow some of these guns up because they were they were bad they're bad german guns mm-hmm. um so into the length of the shell i know that your average like current pistol has is nine millimeters so i can rule that out <laughs> and this is 10 centimeters which is 100 millimeters i feel like a railway gun probably shoot a shell 
that was a yard long or a meter we'll call it a meter for the sake of this and it's 10 centimeters for a female so uh then we'll just say 10 yes that sounds wrong but i'm going to go with it 10 10 yes female argonauts final answer yeah i'm gonna say that this shell is one is, is one meter long yes the correct answer is 36 female argonauts whoa this is what what 11 feet 10 inches oh my goodness it's bigger than my room 3.6 meters how do you get that in how do you load that up a big strong man yeah you, <laughs> <laughs> you, you do need big like like that guy who uh who who punches indiana jones near the plane in the raiders of the lost ark only that guy can pick up the ammunition yeah it was like really heavy i didn't write down how heavy it was but it, it would have to be moved with like another another separate train a pulley system but but just like I don't, i'm not sure how they like load them into the gun with, uh, with great power but not a lot of responsibility <laughs> uh okay let's move on to male length so they're smaller males are around two centimeters how many males go into the largest ever shell as in the largest seashells that come from <laughs> giant clams oh giant clams can get really big not as here's big a hint. as... I don't think it's 11 feet, though. Uh, here's a hint. These clams weigh 200 kilograms or 440 pounds, and they can live for over 100 years. But what kind of life is that? They're sessile or sessile, which means they don't move. Once they're, once they're in their adult stage, they just kind of pick a spot and stay there forever. It helps to not have a brain. You can enjoy things a lot more <laughs> when you don't have a brain. Or you can be fine with and content with not enjoying things. That's true. And not being content with things and not knowing things at yeah, all. Yeah, you can be content with not understanding contentment. <laughs> yeah. All right, I'm going to say this about five feet. Or sorry, f yeah, five feet. Which I don't know how many. You said two centimeters. All right. That is 0.78 inches. So about yeah, about three quarters of an inch, which means that so means eight of eight of these guys go into a foot, and I said five feet. So I'm gonna have to go with 40, 40, uh, 40 male argonauts go into the, I guess length, width, breadth of a, of a giant clam. Okie doke. Um, final answer. Yes, because a five foot clam would be the size of a piano, and that'd be terrifying. And I think that's about as big as they get. So the correct answer is 60 male Argonauts. Oh, and the shell, the shells are 120 centimeters or 47 inches. Did I do something drastically wrong? I, that's what I'm thinking. Or did I? Yeah, I was way off on my math. <laughs> <sighs> Guessing and math are not my strong suits. <laughs> uh, but the, we, did, we did establish that the male is 2 centimeters and the female is 10 yeah. So that's so, a huge difference. That means that, that that's one that you can see pretty clearly. Um uh, and like one the size of a like what a fist? A, a, yeah, that's about 3 inches. Yeah, one's about the size of a fist and the and then the other one's just like super tiny, like a tack. Yeah. Yeah. 
Speaking of tax, are you ready for the fast fact? Yes. Facts. <laughs> uh, males have what is called a hectoctylus. Hectoctylus. Fun word. Which is a tentacle used for reproduction, which is pretty typical of octopuses. They have tent- some tentacles. It's spiders, too, have their reproductive organs at the ends of their two special arms they detach from the male and attach to the female and deliver the male's seed for reproduction the female forms an egg case that looks like you know a nautilus shell unlike typical shells though the casing is made of calcite instead of aragonite um aragonite is what most like clams and this and that and the other thing that lives in the ocean and has a shell that's what their stuff is made of. The shells are formed through secretions that come from the male, female's expanded dorsal tentacles. So it's expanded and like kind of like, like widened like the palm of a hand. So imagine cupping your hands and secreting clay in such a way that it makes a tiny little hut for yourself. And that's how the female argonaut does things. Gross. So once the shell is formed, she fills the case with eggs and then gets inside with the male's tentacle and leaves her own tentacles kind of dangling out. Uh, though it's not technically a shell, she can cover most of her body and head in, inside and leaves only her tentacles outside. So they the, the shells, though, can be pretty brittle. If you find one, you could probably crush it in your hand. They're not called the paper nautilus for nothing. Right. But they, they're probably helpful against some things. Aragonauts are, are venomous and inject venom into their prey with a bite. Did you know that? I did not. They can also use their radula, which is like a tongue thing, to bore into shells of like clams and stuff and then inject the venom. Uh, they typically eat small fish, crustaceans, and mollusks, uh, but they get eaten by tuna, dolphins, and billfish. And what billfish are are like, like the all those fish with long rostrums, like sailfish and marlin and swordfish. Yeah, which means Billy the Marlin's name makes so much more sense now. Who's Billy the Marlin? He's the mascot for the Miami Marlins. Oh, because he's a billfish. Yeah, so I was like, wait a minute. Why is his name Billy and not like Marty the Marlin? Which is like pretty par for the course for for mascots. mascots. <laughs> but that's smart. He's a billfish. Okay. That's all I got for Fast Facts. Well, I have a couple to add to the Fast Facts before we get to the major facts. So um, there's been... Because we've known about this animal uh, for... Uh, over 5,000 years as humanity. Um, and but So we've known about this animal for this long, but we haven't been able to observe it for very long. Uh, so it's been a subject of lots of mystery and conjecture and bad science. So they actually used to think that the Argonaut would kill and eat some other animal and take its shell rather than, like you said, produce its own. Like a hermit crab. Yeah, like a hermit crab. Except for they just find shells. Yeah, they just take discarded shells rather than kill the occupants. Um, 
And they didn't even know about male Argonauts until the mid-19th century. They thought that the what you what you just described as the female Argonaut was the only that was every member of the species. And that makes sense because there you probably wouldn't immediately think that this tiny, tiny male was in the same species as a female. Kind of like the um the anglerfish. If you saw a male anglerfish, you'd be like, that is not an anglerfish. Um, but you'd be wrong. You mentioned the uh, the mating habits uh, involving a detached arm from the male going to the female. Um, and for a long time, after discovering the male, uh, scientists thought that the detached... Well, actually, before discovering the male, scientists thought that the detached arms that were attached... They were swimming over and attaching to the, uh, the female were parasitic worms. <laughs> and then after Aren't they... are they, though, man? After they realized they weren't parasitic worms, they thought that they the arm was the male, the whole male, right? <laughs> it was like that. It's like, oh, that must be the male. Is the this wriggly little arm? Um, so there's been a lot of, <laughs> they've come a long way. It's been a roller coaster uh, to get to this point <laughs> in our understanding of the Argonaut. Uh, but let's get to the let's get to the major fact. Uh, because these these guys are not like your average octopus. Most octopuses are bottom dwellers uh, that swim. They they usually just like kind of crawl around the the sea floor, and they only swim upward uh, when they're threatened. Uh, which is you know different from squid, who spend all of their time in you know, swimming around between the the surface of the water and, and the ocean floor. Um, but pelagic octopuses, that's what they do. They spend their whole time swimming around rather than crawling on the ocean floor. So this means that the Argonaut must live its entire life suspended between the seafloor and the surface of the water. And it can easily get trapped on the surface and unable to dive back down, um, which would lead to predation to, by seabirds um, or eventual beach strandings. And sometimes in Australia, they'll find thousands of these guys stranded on the beach. So how do they constantly remain suspended without any fins and constantly ha having to grip onto an exterior shell? Because I don't know if you mentioned this, um, but with clams and with um, like snails and crabs and a lot of other things that have shells, including the Nautilus, uh, they have permanent fixtures for their yeah. shells they are they are attached to their shells they can't separate them um but the uh, the argonaut creates her shell and then she she can discard it if she wants but that would be you know a lifetime of work thrown away um but the point is she can leave it it's not actually attached to her she yeah the those two special tentacles that she uses to form it i'm pretty sure those are the same ones that they that pretty much stay inside and hold on to the shell yeah so she has to grip onto this exterior shell constantly um and unlike squid she, she doesn't have any fins octopus octopuses don't have fins squid have fins that allow them to steer and move about more easily in the open water um, and after literally thousands of years of speculation about how the argonaut uh, stays afloat uh, we now know the answer buoyancy <laughs> <laughs> it, like just if you look at a like a, a video of any 
any small ocean creature. I was looking at a video of a, a small Argonaut earlier today that was just on the seafloor. And the just the currents and the, the movement of the water really bats them around. If you've ever been snorkeling, you know that the currents can sometimes move you around or like even you as a full-grown human. So if you're little, it takes some doing. You think like, oh, being in the ocean is just like flying. There's like, there's a lot of work that goes into just like maintaining. It's like flying in a hurricane. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So these guys have to, they have to have a way of um, avoiding being swept up to the surface or drilled down to the um the the sea floor um so the answer is that female argonauts have air trapped in their shells and they can regulate the amount of this air in order to maintain and achieve neutral buoyancy now neutral buoyancy is that perfect if you've ever been scoop if you've ever gone scuba diving before neutral buoyancy is super important it's where your weight or the weight of the swimmer is equal the the the, so the the uh force of gravity pulling you down towards the earth is equal to the force of buoyancy pulling you up so you don't float up to the surface and you also don't sink that's neutral buoyancy so as a human your fat cells and the air in your lungs and all that stuff is pushing you up while gravity is pushing you down but a normal human has more buoyancy than gravity pushing them down so you need I mean, unless you empty your lungs, and if you've ever been swimming in a pool and you fill your lungs with air, you're going to float to the surface. But if you release all the air from your lungs, you lose the buoyancy, and then suddenly your weight brings you down to the bottom of the pool. So, so it's not – it's really, really bad <laughs> to run out of oxygen in your lungs. Correct. Um, but <laughs> the Argonaut, being an octopus, does not have to worry about having oxygen in her lungs um, but she does have to have some sort of gas in uh, like available that would allow her to float upward if she needed to float upward once neutral buoyancy is obtained like most other cephalopods uh, the argonaut can move horizontally by pushing jets of water uh, through its body so the squid like octopus, yeah. yeah that's that's how the cuttlefish they they move around quickly by just um, constricting like kind of a their body like a tube and moving moving water quickly through there. Um, so the question is, where does it get the air and how does it regulate it? Um, researchers did a lot of controlled observations in um, in aquariums and things like that, but they couldn't figure out where the argonaut was getting the air because it looked like it was getting it from the surface, but then it would just float to the top and be stuck up at the top of the the like the surface of the aquarium which would be a death sentence for a um for an argonaut in the wild so they were they didn't understand how it was able to get um air from the surface and then also um also be able to maintain that buoyancy um they were thinking that maybe it created some sort of gas um bubble with its own body and then regulated it from there um but Recently, uh, they did some controlled studies, not in an aquarium, but in the wild, um, to see what the Argonaut would do uh, if the air was completely let out of her shell. So they got a bunch of female Argonauts, 
and they held them upside down in this controlled area, but it was in the ocean, open ocean, um, or off a reef or something like that, but relatively deep, uh, until the air was gone out of their, their shells, and then released them. Uh, so, to just to see, like, okay, what do they? How do they get this air? The, so the first thing they did was they uh, they turned themselves where their shell was facing up, and then they they used uh, that jetting motion that we mentioned cephalopods use uh, to get themselves to the surface. And it was a really awkward and difficult thing for them to do, and it required a lot of jets, kind of like a jellyfish going up. Um, to get them to the surface and they moved really slowly um, because they had to work really hard to get their bodies up to the surface with no buoy- almost no buoyancy because uh, all of the forces bringing them down to the um, to the sea floor so once they were up at the surface they actually stuck their shells out of the water and s- kind of turned them uh, counterclockwise in order to scoop water or scoop air into the shell so rather than just picking it up and like letting some air get in there, it actually kind of yeah it it does this big like sweeping motion with its um, with its shell above the surface to 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 gulp as much water as they can into their shell, and then they then they jet down to uh, a uh, a certain depth, which for most female argonauts is about sixteen feet. So they work really hard to get up there. They get a bunch of buoyancy with the air, and then they work really hard to get down to 16 feet. Um, and at 16 feet for them, the water pressure takes uh, pu- puts enough uh, compression on the air bubble that they've just captured to create neutral buoyancy. So the pressure or the the force of the the buoyancy from the air bringing them up is equal to the weight bringing them down. So down at 16 feet, they can move horizontally really quickly with their jets, you know, their jet movement. Um, but it's kind of like having a diving bell, if you've ever played Assassin's Creed. Uh, <laughs> Black Flag. Or if you've ever been a, a diver in the 1800s. Or a diver in a- ancient Greece, because apparently Alexander the Great had a diving bell. Huh. Um. So... Yeah, when, when, as soon as they, they noticed that every single time they emptied the air out of uh, an Argonaut shell, th- their very first priority was to get neutral buoyancy again. Because otherwise they would just sink to the bottom and they couldn't get any... Um, they wouldn't be able to get any food or reproduce because they're just stuck at the bottom. Um, but if they have too much air, then they float to the top and they can't get back... And, and they wouldn't be able to get back down. So... The reason why it wasn't working before, why scientists who had done, uh, or researchers who had done um, studies in aquariums was because the aquariums weren't deep enough. They weren't 16 feet deep. So the the Argonaut would do its instinctual thing, which is capture as much air as possible into its shell and then try to swim down, but it can't swim down to the point where the, the water pressure compresses the air. So then it just yanks it right back up to the surface every single time. It's not intelligent enough to say like, okay, I need a little bit of air this time. Um, it it always gives as much air as possible, and then rather than um, rather than changing the amount of air it grabs, it goes down to a depth to the point where it stops pulling it upward. So hmm. 
And then once it has the air, it uses those two webbed tentacles that you mentioned before that it always keeps inside of its shell to kind of vacuum seal the air bubble inside the shell. So it can then move 360 degrees without having the air bubble accidentally escape, which is unlike a diving bell. Hmm. So in contrast, the very closely related Nautilus has a permanently attached shell with complicated system of gas chambers that allow it to obtain neutral buoyancy uh, in a lot of different scenarios. And, and, it also, and it also allows it to equalize the pressure both inside the shell and outside the shell so it can dive down to about 2,500 feet, the Nautilus can. But the Argonaut can only dive to about 32 feet because it is a much less complicated system of um, maintaining, of achieving buoyancy. But it's, a, it's, a, it's simple and elegant hmm. and difficult. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's... That's the uh, that's the Argonauts, a, a, a little a little uh, a little squid snail. <laughs> so, uh, you got anything else? I do not. So, for you out there in Podcastia, grab an extra pocket of air, hang on to your shell, and always remember to maintain neutral buoyancy using your two most webbed tentacles, like the Argonaut here in life, death, and taxonomy. Hey everyone, Carlos here. The Argonaut may use trapped surface air to stay buoyant, but you know what keeps us afloat? Reviews! People may see our show on a list, but how will they know that it's full of truly interesting animal info unless you tell them? They're definitely not going to believe us, so we need your help. Just log on to your favorite podcasting app, search Life, Death, and Taxonomy, then scroll until you see the option to leave a review. Tell us what you think, how much you love the show, or what you think we could do to improve. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Life, Death, and Taxonomy is my favorite in the world podcast. <laughs> I hope people are trying to, like, what does that metaphorically mean? <laughs> What could that, well, how could I apply that to my life? What are my two most webbed tentacles? <laughs> <laughs> are those my closest friends? <laughs>